Welcome back from spring break, everyone. Hopefully you guys had a, a good week, had some fun. Um, maybe you had a chance to read a book. That was one of the things that, look, I don't think I read a single book over spring break in college, but now the idea of like just taking a vacation and not having anything, the first thing I'd want to do is read a book. Um, and I don't think it's any coincidence that some of the English world's greatest storytellers have been Christian, have understood the nature of the gospel. And in reality, the gospel is the mother of all stories. Um, the, the plot of redemption, of restoration, of sacrifice has been painted up, dolled up, paraded across stages and books, only attempting to grasp the slightest droppings of the drama and the redemption that the gospel story has to offer. They want that depth. They want that richness. Um, and two guys who captured it best are probably C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And in Tolkien's last book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, The Return of the King, he captures some of this glory, this, this grandeur that comes at the conclusion of the gospel story. This reality that the king is coming, that, that Aragorn, heir to the throne of Gondor, is finally coming back. And with the ring being destroyed, there's a new reign coming. And it's beautiful, both in the book and in the film. And, and really, that hope that's in Return of the King, for those of you who are familiar with that, is kind of the hope we're going to see today. And in the book of Mark, we're starting chapter 11, as Chris just read. Um, and from this point on, Jesus and his story is in Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem where the king has come to set up his kingdom. Jesus isn't going to leave Jerusalem again. This is where he's going to die. And all the fanfare of the return of the king is only microscopic in comparison to this story we're going to see unfolding over the last five weeks of GCF in the book of Mark. And what we're going to see today is actually three um, days where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and then goes out of Jerusalem. But those aren't just three days. But Mark, as you'll see in the text, he's very specific about Jesus Going into Jerusalem, coming out of Jerusalem. Going into Jerusalem, coming out of Jerusalem. And then going into Jerusalem one more time. And Mark's specific about that, how he's saying that, and how he's telling that story. Because it's not just three times with Jesus, with three times where Jesus came into Jerusalem. What's actually happening is the kingdom of God is inbreaking into Jerusalem three separate times. This kingdom that Jesus represents, this kingdom that Jesus is preaching, is finally coming, and on the greatest city of the Jewish faith, they're finally seeing what that kingdom looks like, and it's reshaping how they live. As Jesus comes, so does the kingdom. And let me illustrate this. I used to work at Costco, and Costco runs a pretty tight ship. Um, I was a cleanup guy in the meat department, um, and so I had like inspections that they had to check off after every day they'd come back in a manager and sometimes the manager just kind of poke his head in and make sure there's no like dead animals laying around and be like yeah you're good um, but once every now and then corporate would come into town and when corporate came into town for an entire week leading up to it and basically an entire week undoing what happened that week before things get different you you you, you clean deeper than you've cleaned before you scrub things you've never scrubbed you straighten things that were formerly in disarray that no one in their right minds would ever look at while in Costco, but it gets straightened, it gets polished, it gets cleaned, you dress differently when corporate comes in, it's staffed differently when corporate comes in, you talk differently when corporate comes in, and then when corporate goes, it's kind of like that for a little bit, and a little bit, and then it just goes into disarray again until corporate comes back. And while it's still good and, and manageable, there's, there's a distinct shift that comes when corporate's there. Why? Because there's a different authority. 
And there's a different expectation. And in one sense, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, both in these three instances and in what's going to happen to follow, is drastically changing the expectations of not only the Christian life, but of the human life. His kingdom is reshaping the order of things. And as we'll see throughout the rest of the gospel, the kingdom doesn't just leave with Jesus. Jesus sets up a kingdom. A real, not yet final, but real, lasting kingdom. And what we're going to see tonight, specifically, and it's going to grow as we look at these last four sermons, is this. The kingdom of God is an expected kingdom filled with fruitful people established in Christ. The kingdom of God is an expected kingdom filled with fruitful people established in Christ. So let's pray once more. Lord, we have prayed, I think this is the fourth prayer of the evening, and prayer isn't just a transition for us or something that allows us to gather our bearings. We pray because we know that in order to be transformed, in order to be saved, in order to be led to worship, it's not by the power of human might or intellect or understanding, but it's only by the grace of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask in prayer that you are gracious and kind to us tonight, both through your written word and both through the communicated word through the prayer and through the song and through the fellowship. Lord, may you grant us a great mercy as we grow together as we behold the beauty of the cross. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for Mark. We thank you for your son. Praise in your name. Amen. So, uh, really briefly tonight, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these three inbreakings, these three days Jesus has in Jerusalem, and then we're going to read the last portion and then go back and revisit those three to see how those things are changed in, through a different light. What we're going to see first is what you just heard. The kingdom of God is an expected kingdom. It's expected. It's not something new. It's not something that finds its genesis in Mark. And we see this in a story many of you have probably just heard in the past few weeks, the triumphal entry, starting in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples... And he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to them, uh, what are you doing untying that colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and cut others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before them, and those who followed, were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And here we have Jesus coming into Jerusalem. So Jesus has been kind of working in the north, and in the past few chapters, he's been making his way south. And actually, you see this great parallel that's happening. You don't have to turn there, uh, but you see it in Mark 32, where it says those uh, who were amazed were following Jesus, and those who were ahead of them were fearful. And here again, we see that there are those before him and those behind him. And so this crowd that had been following Jesus, things are starting to click in their mind. If this Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, 
If he is the king of the Jews, the rightful king, the one who's going to establish the line of Israel, this Jewish ethnic nation forever, he had to first overthrow Rome in the heart of Jerusalem. This is exactly what they expected from the king who was to come. You can imagine the anticipation of the crowds who are laying down the palm branches in this situation, trying to make some sort of parade or accolade for this guy who's coming in that they've attached so much hope to. And they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom. See, they're fully aware of what they're talking about. They're expecting a kingdom. Blessed is the kingdom. Blessed is the son of our father, David. Now, Hosanna, who knows, so pop quiz, who knows what Hosanna means? Save? Save? Yes, so it, it literally means save we pray. The rest of you, you need to go apologize to Johnny because we've sang songs that include Hosanna and you mindless sheep just followed him blindly. Um, so Hosanna means save we pray. It's literally the transliteration of the Hebrew word into Greek and then to English. It's just translated Hosanna. And so they're literally crying out to Jesus, and they're not just like, hoopla, Jesus. They're they're, they're crying out to him saying, this is the one who's going to save us. This is the one who's going to deliver us. Centuries of oppression from other nations coming in, of occupation, of hardship, of struggle. Here is Jesus. Save us, we pray. Messiah, save us. And so they're excited for this, for David's kingdom. David the king who, who represents the peak of Israel, the, most military, the greatest military might, the greatest financial wealth, the greatest direction was King David. And now they said, this is one like David who is coming. Who can save us? David can save us. One like David. And yet look what happened. Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem. Went to the temple. We looked around at everything. It was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So, so Jesus gets a donkey. They load it up with their coats. And they have this parade and they're cheering, and there are people going before him and after him, and they're dancing and singing, and, and the, 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 the Roman guards on the gates of the city are watching this parade of weird Jews coming in, and they're expecting something great. And, so, and you have to imagine, like, so these guys are excited. The crowd's excited, right? They know what's coming. They know this kingdom. They know the Old Testament prophecies, which speak of a king. And so they're waiting for Jesus to, like, ride into Rome on his great white steed in his coat of armor with his tunic like girded between his loins and a staff and flaming fire. And Jesus is like, give me a colt. Give me a donkey no one has ever rode on. And they're probably like, well, that's not how we would do it. Maybe Jesus is like hipster, right? Maybe he was doing things a little differently. He's like rolling up to the Oscars in 1982 Honda Civic. Um, and so like we could get over that. We, we can get over that. And then you get to the gates of Jerusalem and you're like waiting for Jesus to open up a can and he gets in there and he passes the gates and he's like, we're going to the temple. So he's going to the temple and he gets to the temple and he looks around. So guys, I'm sleepy. It's late. Let's get out of here. And that's the triumphal entry? Who labels these things in our Bible? 
That is the most lackluster, triumphal entry. Owen makes a better entrance into a room, and he's two and a half. And here we have this king coming to establish what they think is a kingdom, and and nothing happened. Why? Because Jesus already is showing them that his kingdom is not what they expected it to be. His kingdom is of a different nature. It's coming. Your your idea of a king, your idea of a kingship is right in theory. There is a real kingdom, and I am a real king, but it's not like you imagined. And the harsh reality is these crowds that we've seen growing and growing and growing around Jesus throughout his ministry, from this moment on, they begin to dwindle. And at best, they get bored with Jesus and they go home. And at worst, these crowds who are following him, praising him, turn into the crowds crying out for his murder. Because at the end, Jesus doesn't die with crowds mourning his loss. He dies with a few followers broken at the death of their friend. There's something drastic that's happening at this point. As expected as the kingdom was to these Jews, it was unrecognizable to them. They didn't know what it looked like. So that ends day one. Jesus goes into Jerusalem. There's this triumphal entry that ends really poorly. They go back to Bethany, which is around the Mount of Olives. And then a new day is coming. And in this new day, we're going to see this. The kingdom of God is an expected kingdom filled with fruitful people. So picking up in verse 12. So a day passes. This is the next day. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. I, see, you love this, because there is this, this, there's this like palpable anticipation of Jesus taking Jerusalem, and you're like, day two, let's do this. And you're on the road, and Jesus is like, is that a fig tree? My tummy's kind of grumbly. They're like, we're going to take down Rome, and you want to eat breakfast? And, and, but Jesus is hungry. He's a, he's a man. He's, he's not this divine spirit that doesn't have a bodily form. He's God and man, and he's hungry. And so Jesus goes to this fig tree, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Now this is really a weird interaction here. Jesus wants food. They're on the way to Jerusalem. There's plenty of food in the city. But he sees this fig tree in leaf. And it's the start of the season. Kind of like right now where you're starting to see trees have leaves. But it's not typical at this point for trees to have fruit. But Jesus goes over and he sees it leafy and he inspects it. And maybe he finds nothing at all. Maybe he finds some fruit which isn't ripe. Um, But then he curses the tree. Why? If it's not the season for fruit, if it's not normative for fruit to be there, why is Jesus so upset that this tree isn't bearing fruit? It's because in the kingdom of God, it's always the season for fruit. In the kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish, there's no such thing as dry seasons. There's no such thing as fruitlessness. There's no such thing as a barren tree. There's only seasons where you produce fruit. It's always the season for growth and renewal. And even though this tree failed to realize it, because it's a tree, it was still held responsible for living inside of kingdom rules. And it didn't do that. 
And now this is silly because we're talking about a tree here, okay? How far do we take this analogy with the tree? But what the tree illustrates is what we see more clearly in the following passage. Mark 11, verses 15 through 19. So he see, on their way in, he stops for breakfast and is disappointed. And they came to Jerusalem, picking up in verse 15. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, in probably the world's most awkward lesson, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching, and when evening came, they went out of the city. So, when understanding the kingdom of God, okay, Jesus talks a lot about it. We should want to understand what the kingdom of God is. When understanding the kingdom of God, it's important to note that Jesus' triumphal entry was not just a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. More specifically, and you saw it earlier in, in chapter 11, and you see it now, the triumphal entry was to the temple. The goal of Jesus' procession was not just into the gates of Jerusalem. The goal of Jesus' procession, the place where Jesus desired to go, where he was entering triumphantly as king, was not the courts of Rome, but the temple courts, where the presence of God was. And see, when Jesus was a child, his parents lost him and they found him in the temple. He said, where else would I be besides my father's place? And here, as a man, he goes back to his father's house, but he's come back to do something entirely different. And as soon as he gets into the temple, we see Jesus start overturning tables and making a scene. And in the Gospel of John, he tells us he actually fashioned a whip. And you have to imagine what that was like for the disciples as you see Jesus making a whip in the temple, just sitting there in the corner, weaving things together, forming a whip, thinking, what's going on? <laughs> I don't think you need a whip here. But then Jesus uses the whip and he starts whipping things and people and overturning tables. So why the outrage? I mean, Jesus is mad. He's throwing tables. He's he's whipping pigeons. He's making a scene. And, And in addition to making a scene, it says that he stopped people from carrying anything throughout the temple. He's disrupted people giving sacrifices to God. He brought a disturbance. He brought a halt to the temple order. Why is Jesus so mad here? Is it a bad day? Angry on the way in, curse the fig tree. Angry in the temple, starts having a temper tantrum. Why is Jesus so mad about this? You see, the temple is set up in a really specific way. You see, the outer court and the largest court was called the court of the Gentiles. And then, and then past this court was the court of the women. And that's where um, Jews and specifically Jewish women would go. And then past that was the court of Israel. And that's where only circumcised men of Israel could be. And then past that was the Holy of Holies, where only during specific times of the year, a priest selected at Lot would be able to go in to the Holy of Holies. And this disturbance, this scene is happening in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And this is where this finance market was set up of sorts. And because Jerusalem's a city, there's not a lot of agriculture for those who live in the city. And so the temple... Uh, had set up this way where you could go and to do your sacrifice, you could buy a dove or a pigeon or a bull or a sheep, whatever you wanted or whatever your kind of wealth bracket desired for that sacrifice. And you could, you could buy 
something to sacrifice. And this in and of itself wasn't a bad problem. Blood was needed. That was the Old Testament sacrifice system. You needed blood, and if you didn't have blood, you, you got to get some. You got to buy some. The problem was that the temple rules were charging exorbitant amounts for these animals. They were making a profit off of the sales of sin. They said, you need forgiveness? I have the means to it. Pay me the right price. Pad my pockets. Give me all that. And so in one sense, this was extortion by the temple officials, charging crazy sums of money for people to do what God had commanded, what God had designed, what God had ordained for people to do. But on the other side, not only was extortion, it also completely disrupted the worship in the outer courts. You see, it wasn't a big deal for, for the Jews because the good Jews could kind of go on into the courts of the women or the courts of Israel. And they could worship there. And they made a profit, so that's good. The good Jews could go in and they could still worship, but it's these Gentiles, you know, it's a little chaotic out there. It's a little hectic. Probably not an atmosphere conducive for them to worship. They probably didn't go. And for the Jews, they're pretty okay with that. In fact, in extra-biblical Jewish literature, you see this false idea that these Jews thought when the Messiah came to purge the temple, that meant the Messiah would come and remove the Gentiles from the temple. So in this, they're probably not too worried about the Gentiles not being there because their hope was that the Gentiles wouldn't be there. But Jesus' kingdom is not like the Jews' kingdom. Look back at verses 17 and 18. And he was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So not only does he convict them for being robbers and extortionists of the gospel, of, of what they need to do to get right with God, he's also saying, you guys don't want the Gentiles here. I'm not coming to kick them out. I'm coming to bring them in. And he rebukes this fruitless temple, which is not producing the fruits of the Jewish faith or the fruits of the Christian faith that's going to be coming. What they're producing is selfish tainted fruits with people who either don't realize what they should be producing or they just realize they could produce for their own profits. And in John, Jesus prophesies that just like that fig tree fails to bear fruit, not one stone will be left on this temple mount, but it will be destroyed. You see, in the next day, when Jesus is coming back from Jerusalem, and we're not going to look at this passage in depth because we've got a lot to get through, um, you, you see in verses 20 through 26, the disciples saw the fig tree that Jesus cursed, and it was withered. That's because things that don't bear fruit don't last in the kingdom of God. Things that don't look or produce kingdom fruit don't belong in the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells them three things. He answers them awkwardly in our eyes. Jesus says this. He says, have faith in God, pray and forgive. If you want to avoid being fruitless, if you want to avoid being that temple, if you want to be different from them, have faith in God, pray, be willing to forgive, and you will avoid destruction. Those are the three things that those people in the temple need to do. Those are the three things that define certain components of your kingdom life. This is what needs to happen, and in so doing, we've started the third day in the temple. Okay? Jesus rebukes the temple, leaves, comes back, he ties the fig tree back to the temple, and now we're on day three still. 
In the third day, we're in the third breaking, inbreaking of the kingdom coming into Jerusalem. And the temple officials at this point, they've slept on it and they're still pretty irritated that Jesus came in and he threw off their prophet and he made a scene and he disrupted worship. Probably rightfully so. But they come to him and they want this question answered. You who have the authority to talk to trees and make them wither. You who have the audacity to come into our temple, which we oversee, and overthrow our economy as fraudulent as it may be, what gives you the authority to do that? What gives you this right? Who do you think you are? And we see this scene unfold in verses 27 through 33. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John, referring to John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then do you not believe him? But if we say for man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. We see the temple officials, as they have done throughout the Gospel of Mark, whether it's the Pharisees or the scribes, they come to Jesus and they ask him questions. But here, In this place where Jesus is setting up his kingdom, Jesus shifts this and he asks them a question. And you see, it's not the scribes who have authority over Jesus, but it's Jesus who has authority over the scribes because Jesus speaks authoritatively. He says, you ask me a question, I'm going to answer you one question. He gives the question and he's like, answer me. And probably unbeknownst to them, the scribes yield to it, therefore showing that Jesus has more authority than them. Jesus has done nothing but ask a question, and he's already answered the question. Uh, You might not know whose authority is, but it's greater than yours. Jesus is greater than them. Jesus is better than them. And he asked them this question that has to do with, with John the Baptist, this figure that was revered by the Jews, this man who wandered around the wilderness baptizing people. And they said, John's baptism, was it of man or was it of heaven? And the, the, the scribes are, are stumped with this because they don't know how to answer because they're paralyzed by this, this fear of man. Because if, if on one hand they say that John's baptism was from heaven, well then they're acknowledging that, that he's in tight with God and if Judaism's about God, they should follow him. But on the other hand, if, if John's just baptizing on, by the strength of man, now you've just angered all the Jews who see him as a prophet. And now you are in danger for the well-being of your temple and of your life. And so like a bunch of scaredy cats, they just answer to Jesus, we don't know. We don't know. But Jesus asked this question specifically. He's not just like, what's a really confusing question for them? What's a question that could get them in trouble? He asked them specifically because what was John's role? A voice crying out in the wilderness making straight the paths of the wicked, preparing the way for the Messiah. 
You see, Jesus asked this question because the nature of John's baptism testifies to the one who would come after him. You see, Jesus is the man from heaven. Jesus doesn't split the two. Where John was a man who proclaimed a baptism from heaven, Jesus is fully man from heaven. Jesus doesn't divide the lines. He brings them into himself. Jesus is fully man and fully God. And just like these scribes and Pharisees have to wrestle, you too will have to wrestle with that. Is Jesus just a man? If so, why are you here? There's plenty of things to do on a Thursday night, on a spring day in Missoula. Why are you here? Why were you here last week? If this is just a man, I could tell you there are better things to do with your Thursday night, with your Sunday morning, with your free time, with your reading activities. There are better things to do with your life if Jesus was just a man. There are plenty of men. There are men who, by worldly standards, put forth a program of more joy than Jesus put forward because they have a different view of it. But if Jesus is God, why don't you believe in him? If Jesus isn't just a man and he is God, then that changes how we view him. That changes how we relate to him. That changes our view of our need for him. And to illustrate this even further, Jesus answers these men in a parable. We see this in verses 1 through 3. And began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the winepress, and he built a tower and leased it to the tenants, and he went to another country. When the season came, that means the season for fruit, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So you guys tracking with kind of what's going on here in this story? So there's this owner who creates a vineyard, and he plants the vineyard, and he describes that he's making things in this place for the intention of producing fruit, of producing a crop. And so he makes it perfect, exactly how he desired it to be made. And then the He leases it out to people. The owner goes away and he leases it to these people. And the expectation is they'll produce fruit. You see that theme in the kingdom of God? You can't escape it. God's kingdom produces fruit-bearing people. In the kingdom of God, God not only expects, God desires fruit. God is coming for fruit. God is concerned about fruit. He's not just interested in the hard efforts of these laborers. He wants the fruit of their reward. And so the season for fruit came, and the owner sent a servant. And the the people who were leasing the vineyard, they sent him away. They beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. This could be for two reasons, couldn't it? It could be, perhaps, they were lazy and they didn't have fruit. Not wanting this guy to talk, they beat him up, sent him away empty-handed. Or the other option is, is that they had produced fruit, but they failed to see who that fruit rightly belonged to. And so they refused to yield it to the owner, instead kept it for themselves. You see, the point of Jesus' parables is that he's making a spiritual point for a practical story. And oftentimes our hearts, when it comes to living in the kingdom of God, can be in one of those two places. We can either be dead and stagnant and have nothing in our lives that looks remotely like a person who lives according to the kingdom of God, who is said to believe in Jesus or follow Jesus. Or perhaps we seem to be doing pretty good for ourselves. We feel comfortable. We feel successful. 
instead of realizing the grace God has had in our lives, we say, look at what I have done, look at what I have accomplished, I don't need your input, I don't need your oversight, I don't need your rules, I've got things handled well on my own, not realizing that the only reason you have those things is because the owner of the vineyard has made it possible for you to have those. And see, regardless of those two positions that these guys could be in, the story continues in verse 4 through 7. Again, he, the owner, sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one, one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them, him to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, There is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So this continues. God's not dissuaded by this. He wants his fruit. He wants his reward. He wants the production of his created thing. He wants his due reward from the people, but these people will not acknowledge his rule. And so they beat, and so they kill, and so they treat shamefully all these servants that come. And then this master says, you know what? I'll send my son. My son who is the representation of me, the son who is the image of me. And so he sends his son and the tenants of this vineyard, they look at each other and they say, this is a cash cow. If we kill the son, we get the vineyard. If we kill the prince, we inherit the kingdom. No more telling us how to live or what to do No more telling us to live under another person's authority. If we kill this son, the servants will stop. The son will stop coming. The owner will stop coming. It will be ours for the taking. We can live the way we want to live and do what we want to do. But the story continues in verse 8. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants have give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, because they're very perceptive. So they left him and went away. So here's the thing. So, in this parable, Jesus is speaking to Jewish officials. And in a very real sense, which Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11, he's saying, Israel, you Jewish officials, you temple keepers who think you're fulfilling the law and doing this temple work properly, you are hard-hearted and you are fruitless. And I will take this faith. I will take this and I will give it to someone else. I'll take my blessing that I've given you and I will bring to full inclusion the Gentiles. This is the meaning in one sense of the passage. But it's also a very real meaning in another way. That those of us who reject God's kingdom, who rejects God's rules, who don't live a fruit-producing kingdom life, you've not inherited the ability to rule your own life. Rather, you've only inherited the wrath of God and sealed your own death. You see, in this life, you can live in two kingdoms. We see in the church, we see in the gathering, we see in devotions, we see the kingdom of God. We see it in the fellowship, we see it in the worship, we see it in communion, we see it in Easter, we see it in the devotions, we see it in all these ways, but we also see in very real sense the evil kingdom. 
We see crime and we see suffering. We see profits off of evil. We see bad people doing bad things who live great lives. But a day is coming when there is only one mode of living. And that's the kingdom of God. And if you find yourself in an ulterior kingdom under another person's rule, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And see, the reality of the kingdom of God is that it's here. And we're going to get more into that as we see what Jesus did to establish that. And it's here, and it's present, and whether you recognize it or not, you're held responsible for your actions in it. You're required in the kingdom of God in this very moment either to live in it through anarchy and rejection and therefore inherit death or through willing submission, yielding control to God, to the owner of the vineyard and life. You see, Jesus said he wasn't going to answer the question of authority, but he answered it. Why does Jesus have the authority to talk to trees, to change the temple? Because Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus has the authority of the kingdom because God has given it to the Father. And one day we'll see when all is accomplished and the rule and reign has been set up, Jesus will hand the kingdom over to the Father. But until that time, Jesus is reigning, Jesus was reigning, and Jesus is powerful in his reigning. Jesus is the king because he's the son of God. And what we've just seen are three inbreakings of what that kingdom is like. But what we just saw in those last few verses radically redefines those three scenes we saw prior to this. And in so doing, not only do we see Jesus' inbreakings into Jerusalem differently, we see the entire Bible differently. Look back at Mark 12, 6 through 11. So picking up in the middle of the parable, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him outside the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So what does it mean that Jesus has become... And so at this point, can, can, we, can, we, can we come to the realization that this is a foreshadowing of the cross? A son being sent by the father, being killed and brought outside the city. Okay, So we're getting there. So what makes Jesus this cornerstone? And what does it mean that this has become a marvelous thing? And what's happening here is Jesus himself is actually quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24. This is what they say. Psalm 118. I'm in Psalm 119. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus is quoting a passage that these Jews knew. These temple officials specifically would have known this verse because of the hope it offered. And, And during this time, Jesus is using it and he's saying that through the death of the Son... God is doing a marvelous thing. Looking at the rest of the New Testament, we begin to see how this is reshaped by Jesus. This final component is that the kingdom of God is an expected kingdom filled with fruitful people established by Christ. The cornerstone which has become Christ, 
Christ, which has become the cornerstone, reshapes everything. And we see this, this redefinition, beginning to happen in Ephesians 2, verses 18 through 21. How does Christ reshape the temple that we just saw Jesus coming and interacting with the temple? How does the cornerstone reshape that? Verses 18 through 21 says this. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the prophets and the apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together into the holy temple of the Lord. See that language? And so in this passage, Paul is specifically writing to Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying the mystery of the gospel is this. You've been brought together. And further than that, he says you've been brought together in Christ, and in Christ we have a new temple. You see, the Jews thought that the temple would be the icon of the Jewish nation. In this new kingdom, people would look at the temple, and they would see two things. One, they would see the power of God, and two, they would see God's wonderful blessing to the Jews. But when Jesus came to the temple, he disrupted the ongoings of the sacrificial system. He, he overturned tables and he overturned the money side, but he stopped sacrifices for a moment. He wouldn't let anyone carry anything anywhere. And it wasn't a one-time thing. You see, it's not simply that Jesus made a scene that people stopped giving sacrifices. Jesus temporarily stopped the sacrificial system because it was an inbreaking of a time and a kingdom where there would no longer be need for sacrifices. They completely stopped for a moment representing a new temple where the sacrifices would be stopped permanently. It was representative of the Christ, who as Hebrew says, is the final sacrifice, the final perfect lamb, and a sacrifice not only for the Jews, but for the whole world. And in so doing, Jesus not only destroys the temple sacrificial system, but he destroys the temple himself because Jesus is the temple. And Jesus' people come from all tongues and nations, and in Jesus, people see the power of God, and in Jesus see God's blessing to all the people. The presence of God is no longer confined to a space or to an ethnic people group. The presence of God is for those who express faith in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles, barbarians, and whatever the rest. Jesus has brought them to himself. Jesus has reshaped the temple. He's the cornerstone. How does Jesus reshape the fruit tree? Jesus finds this tree lacking fruit even when it was not yet the season for mature fruit, but in the kingdom of God, there's always fruit. In, in, in Zach, the book of Zechariah, Zechariah is a prophet, and God is, is telling Zechariah, go call back Israel, this repentant, hard-hearted people that God's eventually going to take the blessing from and give it to the rest of the world. He says, go call them back to repentance. And he gives them eight visions in the book of Zechariah. And in those eight visions, God is saying, declare this to them, declare this to them, to give them hope, to draw them back, to bring them to me. But there's a really specific and relevant vision that happens in Zechariah 3, verses 6 through 10. And so it's a vision of the high priest called Joshua. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on that stone I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I have engraved its inscription, 
declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, that coming day when the servant comes, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. You see, the branch is Christ. The suffering servant of God is Jesus himself. And before we're ever able to produce fruit on our own, we must come and sit under the tree of Christ. We must be found covered by Christ before we produce in our own. The Bible refers to Jesus as the first fruit. And in Jesus, we find our ability to produce fruit. To produce our own fruit, you must first taste the fruit of the cross. And only from that position are we then granted life in ourself, which produces real, rampant fruit observable change and alignment to the kingdom of God. In Philippians, Paul is writing to the people in Philippi, and he says, work out your own salvation in fear, in trembling, fight, labor, stress, toil to produce kingdom-like fruit, toil to work on your salvation, to do hard work. But he also says this in Philippians 1, 6. He says this, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. You must produce fruit. To consider yourself a Christian, to look at Jesus say, that's my Savior, say, I'm now living in the kingdom of God, you must produce fruit. But you can only do so in light of what Christ has already done We do not produce fruit to merit or earn our salvation. We must not produce fruit because uh, of anything that we earn, but we must produce fruit because it is a sign and it is a signal of the salvation that Christ has already done in us. Because in Christ, it's the season for fruit. So my question to you is, where's your fruit? In your life, if you see the kingdom of God, if you see this picture of the vineyard, you say, I don't want to be the one who rejects the son who kills the son, where's your fruit? Where's the observable difference? Where's the discipline? Where's the worship? Where's the evangelism? Where's the mission? Where's the discipleship? Where's the care? Where's the forgiveness? Where's the prayer? Where's the faith? Where's the service in your life? There's a lot of ways we can bear fruit. Where is it in your own life? Because if we have tasted the fruit of Christ, if we sit under the shade of the cross, we're capable of much fruit. And that's of benefit not only to you, but to the world around you. Lastly, in closing, how does Jesus reshape the triumphal entry? Looking at that passage in Psalm that Jesus quotes at the end, how does this reshape the triumphal entry? We've already seen the disappointment of the lackluster fanfare surrounding his entry. For hundreds of years, they've been waiting for this, and Jesus walks in and does nothing. Goes to the temple, turns over some tables, gets yells at by the scribes. In a sense, Jesus is setting up a very real kingdom, but it's not the kingdom they were hoping for. And in crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, in the highest, they were desperate because they saw it. They got it. They, they understood that they were in oppression, that they needed a king, that a kingdom was coming. They recognized that that was Jesus, and they said, you, Jesus, man, Messiah, save us. Save us from this oppression. Save us from this dictatorship. They knew he was the one, but they were disappointed he didn't do something they wanted. But they missed it. They missed the reason Jesus came. 
So remember that Psalm 118, the Psalm Jesus quotes at the end that I said reshapes this whole passage. Look what comes next in the passage we read. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So here we see that how does Jesus become the cornerstone? How is he rejected? On the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our own eyes. We just celebrated that on Easter. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Literally, after that passage, Jesus quotes, save us, we pray, the word Hosanna. What's the answer to the cries of Hosanna, of the crowds proclaiming the coming Christ? Is the answer going to be overthrowing Herod? Is the answer going to be conquering Rome? The answer was going to be the crushing of the king and the rising again. And through that rejection, we have salvation. And through that rejection, we pray and we hope for faith because the king has come and he has set up his kingdom according to his way. And praise God, he saved us in that way. Praise God Jesus didn't settle for the head of the Roman emperor. Praise God he went for the head of Satan and conquered it on the cross. The kingdom of God is established on Christ because Christ is the means of entrance into that kingdom. Christ is the king and Christ is the doorway. Save us, we pray, O Christ. So my question to you is, are you part of this kingdom? A kingdom which Christ said is typified by faith in God, prayer and forgiveness to have faith to not reject Christ and be found in the wrath of God but instead with humble repentance to realize that Jesus is the king and that Jesus has authority over your life and to bear fruit to the fullest because of what he has freed you to do you see Jesus spoke to the owner of the donkey through his disciples and they yielded his back Jesus spoke to the tree and it withered at his word. I pray that this same Jesus, this same great king, will speak to your heart, and in so doing, bring you to salvation and fruit forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, and we're going to see this again in Mark. Salvation is only fully understood in light of the judgment that we avoid by being saved. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us, we pray, and don't just save us from the struggles of this life that seem so large but are so petty. Don't just save us from financial neglect. Don't just save us from awkward relationships. Don't just save us from a career we don't like. Don't just save us from being aimless in this life. Save us from sin. Save us from death. Save us from the wrath of God. But praise be to God and rejoice and be glad, for today is the day of our salvation. Today is the day we're in full, we're part of this kingdom, this new regime which Jesus has shaped according to his purposes and his desires and grant us salvation and lead us to bear fruit, not because of what we have done or what we have merited, because of the power of the king who has established a good and great kingdom. Lord, you have authority over our hearts. Take our hearts. Make us worshipers. Lead us in fruit, repentance, and faith. 